I'd like to begin tonight's talk with a story of compassion and forgiveness and then wisdom. It's the story of Abraham Davis, lives in Fort Smith, Arkansas. About a year ago, he vandalized a mosque in that town and wrote hateful, bigoted words on the mosque. And he was arrested and he realized the wrongdoing and asked for forgiveness from the mosque. And they offered forgiveness and they actually went to the courthouse and asked the judge not to convict him of a crime. So the great act of compassion and an act of generosity of actively caring. And he was convicted of the crime, however, and he was ordered to pay $3,200 to the court to do public service work and serve six months in jail. So he completed his jail term and was dutifully doing his public service work at the Goodwill store, but unable to find a job because he had the criminal record. So he was falling behind and paying off that $3,200, the fine that he had to pay back. So amazingly, the mosque came forward and actually paid that bill. A great act of generosity. In effect, the mosque members told Abraham that he mattered. They saw his humanity. This expression of compassion, generosity, and forgiveness. Abraham uh, said it was a great weight lifted being off my shoulders. He said, I don't deserve it, but this act of kindness is just wow. And then he went on to say, I want to say I regret what I did, but at the same time, I don't. He explained further, It's like a flower just sitting there, waiting for the right drop of water to tap its petals, to open up and reveal something beautiful on the inside. So tonight I'm going to speak about compassion, the second of the four divine abodes, these beautiful qualities of the heart that we've been sharing instructions on cultivating these qualities on Tuesday and Friday afternoons. So again, these four divine abodes, these Brahma-viharas, are loving-kindness, or metta, compassion, supportive joy, and equanimity. Equanimity being the calm, peaceful, balanced acceptance of things as they are. Compassion is also included in right intention, right thought, second factor on the Eightfold Path. The right intention that consists of renunciation, renunciation, letting go of the forces of greed, aversion, delusion, the intention of loving kindness, and the intention of non-harming, supported and guided by compassion.
The compassion is defined as the recognition, the acknowledgement of suffering and the wish for it to end. It's a beautiful quality of the heart. It's often described as being a quivering of the heart. Maybe you can connect with that feeling now, the quivering of the heart that you might have felt on hearing about someone suffering about an illness or an accident. And that immediate quivering of the heart is a sign of the compassion that's arising. Mingo Rinpoche says that compassion is a spontaneous wisdom of the heart. It's always with us. It always has been and always will be. When it arises in us, we simply learn to see how strong and safe we are. And there's a great inspiration of the Buddha with compassion, who fully realized the truth of the way things are, realized the deepest roots of suffering and the path leading to the very end of suffering. As a Buddha, he could see the suffering of the entire world hold it with a heart of compassion. But he had infinite wisdom too. The wisdom, compassion balanced. And even though he could see the suffering of the entire world, he was known as a happy one. So we can cultivate compassion, perhaps most importantly, self-compassion right here on our practice on this one month or two months long retreat. Really deeply supports our practice, our willingness to meet our experience more fully, to be more intimate with our experience, to be receptive to even the greatest difficulties and challenges that arise in practice. It also connects us to the universality of suffering. It provides a greater spaciousness, greater heart connection to all beings. And this compassion and self-compassion supports clarity, supports the arising of wisdom. Compassion and wisdom become the wings of awakening. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly Compassion and wisdom open together. Compassion becomes a spontaneous force that arises as the forces of greed, aversion, delusion subside. When there is a direct realization of the empty, transparent nature of all experience. So compassion, the spontaneous wisdom of the heart, It's deeply supported by loving kindness, by the practice of cultivating loving kindness, starting with self and benefactor, extending outwards in all directions, this unconditional force of benevolence, of goodwill, deeply supports the arising of compassion. Compassion is also deeply supported by our practice of present awareness practice of mindfulness that allows us to strengthen the quality that allows a continuity of awareness moment to moment. 
There's the inspiration of Deepama, one of the most deeply realized beings of the last century. In this quote, she said, I feel loving thoughts and metta towards everyone. I don't discriminate. I don't say this is my daughter. I have to give her more attention. My love feels the same towards everyone. Quite a powerful statement on the depth of metta, the depth of emptiness realized by Deepama. So the practice of loving loving kindness softens and opens the heart, supports the relaxed, kind awareness. It will support us through the difficulties and challenges of our practice and supports the human connection, breaking through the false sense of separateness. And for that reason, we continue to encourage as teachers the use and cultivation of metta on the retreat as a tool for supporting mindfulness. Compassion is also supported by equanimity. This calm, peaceful acceptance of the heart, this heart quality that accepts the present moment as it is, that can accept all the joys and the sorrows of the world with balance, with a sense of it's like this. Equanimity ultimately providing the ground for the deepest realization, for the clearest seeing. So compassion is very different from pity. Pity pity is a near enemy and it has a sense of separateness. In my own experience, when there's a sense of pity for someone, there's kind of a yucky quality when I recognize the pity, kind of a sense of your suffering, not my suffering, a, a real separateness. It can be a self-pity too that we might experience, kind of a looking down on our own experience, kind of a sense of making ourselves, having a sense of inferiority. We can recognize this as pity, and see and be with a direct experience to allow the letting go. Cruelty and hatred are the far enemy. And again, we might experience this as uh, self-hatred on retreat, kind of the, the harsh judgment, something wrong, something wrong with the practice, something wrong to be having these feelings that are present now. So in this talk too, I want to share experiences and some stories for my volunteer work over many years as a uh, hospice volunteer. This became my Dharma gate, Dharma gate, kind of the gateway to, for practice, to strengthen practice and to open more deeply to see things as they are. I would really give almost as equal importance to this work in my practice as a retreat practice and the day, daily life practice. I came to the practice uh, in the 80s and 90s, lost many friends to AIDS. And when I was with friends as they were dying, felt somehow very close to the truth, close to something mysterious. And even though I didn't yet have this practice, it felt like a calling. So I became a volunteer for many years 
during the AIDS crisis and then took a break for five or six years and uh, went back to hospice volunteer work for another seven years in 2007. And Buddha too gave great importance to practice around death and dying, practicing in the charnel grounds, practicing to recognize that this body is subject to old age, sickness and death, to recognize that all we love and hold dear in this life will pass away. Nothing of this body, mind, experience, anything we love to hang on to for lasting happiness. The hospice work too served to open the heart, to open the heart to the beautiful qualities of loving kindness and compassion, even to, uh, even to supportive joy, as well as to equanimity. In my hospice practice, uh, I'd learn, I learned, it took me some years to learn this. I finally started using the metta practice as my entry into the volunteer work every shift as a way of arriving fully. Sometimes I might have fear arising, fear of, am I good enough? Am I ready for this? Sometimes it might be just the thoughts, plans, activities for the rest of the day that might be arising. So kind of the distractions that prevented me from being fully present for the experience. I started offering metta, starting with myself, beginning of every shift as a way of arriving, as a way of coming into present awareness to support the mindfulness practice while serving those who are dying and serving their family members. This gift of presence is such a gift we all have as practitioners to bring into the world be present for those who are suffering, to just be able to to sit and listen deeply. That was my practice in hospice care. The instructions were to sit, to listen, to breathe. Not very different from the instructions we offer here as a starting point. It became a gift to the residents, the presence that the volunteers offered, that the staff offered, because so often people in their lives were pressing them to eat more food or pursue new medical treatments or telling them they needed to feel a particular way or not feel a particular way. So to be able to just be present with them was a gift, a gift for them that allowed them to offer, open their hearts, sometimes open to forgiveness, sometimes open to deep acceptance, sometimes a very profound letting go of the defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion, sometimes coming into great peace right in the midst of the dying process. Many of the residents became my teachers. They were teachers for me. And... uh, I'll tell a few stories tonight, a few short stories from those experiences. This first one is with a resident named Russell. He was there about three or four weeks, and um, 
had some conversations with him. A nice guy, probably mid-80s. In the time he was there, he didn't have a single visitor. The day that I came in, the day I'll be talking about, came into his room and he was, I thought, taking his last breath. He had his final exhale. Because I stood in the doorway for about 45 seconds. He didn't breathe. I sat down beside him and put my hand on his and said, may you let go to the love and light that is your home. And then a deep breath. (laughs) And I spent the next six hours with him uh, till the end of his life. And uh, it was profound, it was a sacred time was such a profound letting go that was happening in the room. The Brahma Viharas were just so naturally arising. Initially there was compassion. At times there was great joy, the great joy arising right there. Great pervading sense of peace, the peace of equanimity. And that time together He lost his sight, lost his ability to speak, lost most of the sensations on his body. A lot of the sense doors closing down, but there was still awareness. There was still hearing. The amazing thing is there was absolutely no sense of separation. The awareness wasn't mine, wasn't his. The Brahma-viharas weren't his or mine. This is just present. There's absolutely no distinction to be found whatsoever. There is no sense of any force of the defilements of greed, aversion, delusion being present. A real sense of opening to the peace that's possible in any moment, in any moment peace that's possible right now, the peace that's possible at the moment of death. So compassion, self-compassion supports us to know suffering more directly right here on our retreat with whatever challenges or difficulties are arising. This is such a key part of our practice to be receptive to these challenges and to bring in a sense of kindness and compassion to support that open receptivity. As we cultivate practice, as we cultivate kindness, compassion, more naturally, compassion can can arise as a spontaneous force that supports the deeper letting go, the deeper seeing of the hindrances when they're present, the appreciation in their, their absence, and then the greater clarity that arises as the hindrances subside. We can use the tools of noting when the suffering is present, just as a simple act of recognizing the suffering is an act of compassion. The other night, Brian used the word ouch, suggested just using the word ouch, a great tool to use. And you could just note, this is suffering. 
my teacher Sylvia Borstein here for many years at Spirit Rock. She said she used the phrase, Sylvia was also one of the founding teachers here at, at Spirit Rock. Sylvia said that she uses the phrase, sweetheart, you're in pain, take a breath. <laughs> Great tool, just using the word sweetheart in itself invites kindness and compassion. Sweetheart, you're in, you're in pain, relax, take a breath. So we can check into our practice from time to time too to see if there is a freeze or a turning away from suffering or if there's an acceptance, a sense of tenderness, a sense of kindness, a sense of compassion. So we invite what is skillful with our practice. Compassion too brings a sense of energy to practice, the energy to keep going, to find a greater strength in practice. From His Holiness the Dalai Lama, a mind committed to compassion is like an overflowing reservoir, a constant source of energy, determination, and kindness. It brings energy, determination, courage, this quality of virya, and kindness. And he goes on to say, this mind can be likened to a seed. When cultivated, it gives rise to many other qualities such as forgiveness, tolerance, inner strengths, and the confidence to overcome fear and insecurity. So the forgiveness of the members of that mosque in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The energy, the inner strength to keep going with this practice even through the difficult times. An opening to the equanimity it supports the acceptance of whatever may be arising. I remember some years ago really getting stuck in practice on a long retreat at IMS, Insight Meditation Society. Remembering kind of an ancient childhood trauma and a real sense of pit, pity. I didn't recognize it at the time, but it was a self-pity really stuck, contracted, difficult emotions, didn't want to open to it. Just kind of a freeze, a shutting down. Almost kind of a sense of dying that we can feel when there's that deep freeze and shutting down. And I told Joseph about this, and he told me what he saw and what I said was the universality of suffering. The universality of suffering, of being in this human condition. I heard it, but it didn't land in any particular way. But some hours later, as I was doing my walking practice, just back and forth, lifting, moving, placing, the heart opened. The heart opened to recognize that every being is experiencing suffering of some kind. This is the human condition. That millions of others had experienced the same kind of trauma I had experienced. It was a big shift. Then I could open to compassion, open to compassion for other beings, open to self-compassion for the suffering being known. Then the, the self-pity dropped away and I could be more directly present 
for the experience, allowing the light of awareness to shine more clearly, allowing the healing and the letting go to happen. We can also be bring compassion in just to noticing the suffering that's present and the habitual patterns of the mind at a very, sometimes at a very simple level, just noticing the tendency to hang on, to grasp for what is pleasant, perhaps to make it permanent, to make our happiness dependent on keeping what is pleasant. As Amana talked about last night, our pushing away what's unpleasant, making our happiness dependent on getting rid of that. So this is all part of the path of purification. Purification of the stories and emotions, purifications of understanding, of the misunderstanding that we can have in life of what brings happiness and what leads to suffering. Another tool that's offered by Dr. Kristen Neff. I imagine James might have offered this in February on the first month of the retreat. He often talks about this as well. She's a compassion expert. And she uses this phrase that uh, James modified somewhat. I'll use his modified version. She says, when compassion, when suffering is present, to use this phrase of, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind and compassionate to myself. And can even use a tool of holding the hand of the heart and saying those phrases gently. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind and compassionate to myself. So as we enter into our direct experiences more deeply, it does require courage, determination, energy. And with compassion, with a practice of mindfulness, we find a greater courage and strength that we might have thought possible. Certainly found this at times in my practice, or sometimes I would feel like this is too much, but just returning again and again, going gentle with the practice, but finding that courage and strength to allow the Dharma to do the work, to allow the purification process to unfold. We find a way to be more gentle, more tender with ourselves as well. Sometimes we, more and more in fact, we, we see that second arrow. We see when we shoot that second arrow of resistance, of contention, of needing any part of the experience to be different than it is. When we shoot the second arrow and there's suffering, can be more fully present to see what leads to suffering and what leads in the direction of happiness. Sometimes we do need to go slowly into the greatest difficulties, to kind of dip the toe in the water, to be gentle with ourselves. 
using the wave analogy that uh, some of us have been referring to, the, the waves of the ups and downs of practice. Sometimes we ride those ups and downs, the waves rising up and down, but sometimes a wise action is to dive under the wave if it's too strong. So using your tools of practice to know when to do that, when to back away for, for a period of time and then go back in. Uh, there's a story I'd like to share too now of um, how faith, how faith can support the practice is trusting confidence in the heart. It's trust in the Dharma, trust in awareness. This too supports the arising of compassion and deeply supports the arising of wisdom. It's a story of my meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, I had this great privilege to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama about 12 years ago. It really inspired my practice. I worked at the San Francisco airport, SFO. I didn't get any flight benefits. <laughs> but, uh, Occasionally some perks. So one of the perks was sometimes if political figures, VIPs were coming through, I'd have the opportunity to, to just stand at the bottom of the stairs and meet them. And it's rare that I took advantage of those opportunities. But uh, one of the police officers who headed the uh, dignitary unit told me His Holiness the Dalai Lama was coming, coming to the airport, arriving was arriving from India by way of Japan, so a very long day of travel. So I went in, went in on my day off on Saturday to be there, and really wasn't sure what to expect, whether I'd actually get to, to greet His Holiness. He arrived at the international terminal, but as a head of state, he doesn't have to go through customs and immigration. So he was, just came down the stairs at the nose of the plane. And that's where I, I met him. I stood at the bottom of the stairs. I expected there'd be an entourage there, but the only entourage was security and police officers. Only other people there. I think I may have been the only person not carrying a gun besides his holiness the Dalai Lama. <laughs> he, has his own, he has his own secret service, U.S. Secret Service. Uh, San Francisco police all there in force. And a small motorcade of uh, four or five cars for him and his security detail. He walked down the stairs slowly and he just radiated qualities of kindness, sense of equanimity, sense of joy, and a real strong presence of these Brahma Viharas. When he got to the bottom of the stairs, I simply bowed to him in silence, and he took my hand and, and greeted me very warmly. And unbeknownst to me, the police officer had a camera that I knew, so he took a photo, and as the photo was being taken, I told, uh, oh, kind of touches my heart to recall this. <laughs> I told His Holiness the Dalai Lama that I was a practitioner. 
That's all I said. He walked 70 or 80 feet to his car, to the motorcade, and the door was open. He was just about to get in, and he looked back at me. And I thought, he can't be looking at me. <laughs> Why would he be looking at me? So what do you do? <laughs> I bowed. <laughs> and he waved me over. And uh, he took my hand again. And he just said, tell me, I want to know, how long have you been practicing? And I told him, and that was all. But it was such a blessing that he connected with my deepest wish for freedom. This act of compassion, sensing how important the meeting was for me, that he would take the time after probably an 18-hour day of travel to connect and call me over. And also unbeknownst to me, the police officer was taking photos of this whole sequence. Uh, I have about <laughs> 16 photos. <laughs> and the last photo, I had the deepest, most profound look of equanimity that I've ever seen on my own face. <laughs> so this really inspired my practice, deeply inspired my practice. It's a real turning point. Should mention a few few weeks later, the police officer he thought maybe I was really getting into meeting famous famous people, so he said, "President Obama's coming through in a couple of weeks." <laughs> I said, "No, nothing can beat His Holiness the Dalai Lama." <laughs> so forgiveness is also a powerful tool to support. Uh, the arising of compassion to support the practice of mindfulness, to support the purification of the heart. I'll tell another story, a lot of stories tonight. Sometimes uh, certain topics are ripe for stories. It's the story of uh, John Lewis. I think of John Lewis as being one of the great American heroes of our time who's still living. A civil rights leader for almost 50 years. And throughout that time, entirely committed to nonviolence. Civil rights activists fully committed to nonviolence. He was <coughs> beaten in 1961 at a protest in a whites-only bus waiting room it's in South Carolina. And years later, he was visited in Washington. He's a congressman. He was visited by the man who had attacked him, who was then in his 70s. And the man was there with his son, and he said to Congressman Lewis, I'm one of the people who beat you and beat your seatmate. I'd been a member of the Klan, and I want to apologize. Will you accept my apology? Will you forgive me? And tearfully, John Lewis did. He was quoted as saying, It is the power of the way of peace, the way of love. And then he quoted from Dr. Martin Luther King, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. You must never ever hate. The way of love is a better way. The way of peace is a better way. So the forgiveness, the forgiveness that allows the healing, 
the putting down of burdens, the weight of carrying the burden of anger we put down when we forgive. The near enemies of compassion are righteous anger, fear, grief. Sharon Salzberg says, compassion is quite different, in fact, from anger, fear, and grief. These states of aversion can drain us and destroy us. This is not to say that it is wrong to feel them, but we must be able to look at our own direct experience truthfully and see the consequences of one set of responses as opposed to another. So here on the retreat, we might sometimes feel a response of anger, aversion, kind of being known in the body-mind experience. Might feel resistance to the stories that are arising. Might feel resistance to path, the uh, path of progress of insight, the unfolding path of practice. So it's not a problem to feel this anger, but we can acknowledge it. We can acknowledge its presence, acknowledge it with kindness and compassion, and then respond with the wisdom of love and compassion rather than with, with hatred or ill will. Sometimes we respond with compassion, with action. Sometimes compassion naturally results in, in an action. Sometimes it doesn't. The story from last September of a sister, Mary Margaret, principal of a school in Florida, following one of the hurricanes there. There was a photo of her in her nun's habit with a chainsaw cutting a tree. And the CNN reporter went to interview her after this photo was seen in the media. And she said, the road was blocked. I saw someone spin in the mud and almost go into a wall going off the road. And so there was a need. I had the means, so I wanted to help out. So this immediate response of the heart to take action. And she continued, we teach our students, do what you can to help. And so this was an opportunity where I could do something to help. So compassion too brings a malleability of the heart, kind of a softening of the heart. It opens the heart to allow the supportive joy, mudita, to arise spontaneously as well just as I experienced in the hospice center with Russell. When one Brahma Vihara is strongly present, whether it be loving kindness, compassion, supportive joy, or equanimity, when one is strongly present, the others can naturally respond and arise in response to the conditions being known. Ultimately, these beautiful qualities of the heart they're innate, you could say innate to the heart, innate to awareness itself. And compassion, sometimes we can think of it as being compassion as grim, but I, that was not my experience of compassion at all in the hospice center. Almost always when I left the hospice center, I felt a greater peace and ease, a lightness 
where the compassionate was known. It's interesting too, I never went to the hospice center saying, I'm gonna be compassionate today. I had the intention for kindness and the intention for presence, but compassion was an arising force in response to the conditions being known. And being in the hospice center, I really saw the ordinariness of death. Such an ordinary experience. Sacred, the ending of every life. Every life without exception is sacred. Every person I was with in the dying process really could sense the beauty of their hearts. And the mystery of the letting go, something beautiful in the complete letting go. And the complete letting go at the end of life. And the complete letting go in our practice. This has really inspired my practice to open to the sacredness of this practice, the sacredness of every moment. to support the deeper letting go. It opens to the deepest freedom, to the deepest peace. So a story of Shane from hospice, it's a brief story. Shane had been at the hospice center one day when I met them and uh, Walked into the room and said, asked if it was okay if I spent some time there. And I said yes and asked Shane, so what's it like being here? And he said, once again, everything is new. Kind of this immediate, open freshness. When there's no clinging, once again, everything is new. And then Shane looked around the room further, looked out the window, could see just the top of a tree, a little bit of the sky, nothing special. And they said, everything is beautiful. It's real aliveness, it's beauty that's present. And the clinging is absent. And then Shane said, will you serenade me? Some of you heard me chant. (laughs) So I said, you don't want me to serenade you. (laughs) I can't sing. And Shane said, yes, you can. So we sat together in silence. That was a serenade. The peace that's possible in any moment. It's complete letting go even when great physical discomfort is present. So I want to share one final story, a story of Mary, a story about how the kind of the mystery quality of these, how these Brahma Viharas, these divine abodes arise, and particularly around compassion. 
Uh, Mary had been there for about three months and I sat with her almost every Sunday. Uh, the nurses said she had no cognitive ability at all. She'd had a stroke, never spoke, spoke, never showed any sign of reacting to anything. But I would hold her hand uh, every time I sat with her and I, I felt some real kindness. It was a real gift to be with her. And one day we were sitting and we heard a glass break in the next room and a cry out for help. And immediately her hand raised up and waved for me to go help the other person. I thought, where does this come from? Uh, compassion, just kind of as a review, compassion supports our practice of mindfulness and is supported by cultivation of loving kindness, cultivation of equanimity, cultivation of faith, opening to faith. Allows us to realize the difficult challenges, emotions that arise in practice are ephemeral without substance, not who we are. Opens us to holding the stories of our lives with more tenderness and care, more spaciousness. Brings a deeper trust in the unfolding process. Let go of the needing to be in the control of feeling like we have the need to get somewhere. supports the recognition that when we cling, hold on to or push away any part of the experience, then there is suffering. And this supports the allowing of the Dharma to reveal itself, for the Dharma to do the work, opening in the direction of a peace and happiness that's not conditioned, the unconditional, the unconditioned. Uh, compassion and wisdom is two, the two wings of awakening. From Joseph Goldstein, one of the great turning points in my practice was realizing that wisdom and compassion were expressions of each other. Compassion is the very activity of emptiness of self. This compassion is not a stance of the ego or even of a particular practice, but as a spontaneous expression of a heart and mind free of self-reference. I'd like to just read a quote from Shanti Deva in the Bodhisattva's Way of Life as an ending. And this uh, appears in Joseph's book titled Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. 
my body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings, like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For at boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be the ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bond of suffering. I'll sit in silence. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.